should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome. Happy hump day, I should say. It's Wednesday. Wednesday, January 13th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and our producer Fong is in studio. Good morning, Fong. Good morning, Michelle. We are uh, recording this show for for later this afternoon, uh, so thanks so much for tuning in today. Um, so, Fong, I, I, I have a question for you. Did you tune in to the State of the Union address by a president last night? I didn't get to. What did I miss? Well, I, I yeah, it yeah, I guess I could say you missed a lot. I know, uh, right? but at the same time, I think overall. If I were to summarize the president's State of the Union address, um, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with, uh, in some ways, I mean, he wasn't pointing out, you know, certain politicians or even the presidential candidates uh, such as Donald Trump. But I feel like the State of the Union address was a, uh, was kind of like a rebuttal uh, without naming names. Like, mm. I mean, he addressed some of the issues that these presidential candidates seem to continue to bring up such as immigration um you know employment uh and things like that but but um yeah i think i think president obama wanted to go out with a bang it's his last mm-hmm. state of the union address Definitely. i think he wanted to stay positive i think he wanted to uh make sure that people remember you know the progress that he's made in in this country uh, but anyway you 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 can find it online and mm-hmm. and all the uh talk shows are talking about it um, i'm sure i'm sure i was just curious to to know if you know young people are tuning into these things these days a lot of them are um people have been posting a lot on facebook about you know the things he said but then it's bits and pieces so i couldn't really get everything you know got it well today's conversation i think is going to be fascinating i mean especially uh, on the heels of or or i should say right after the state of the union address and especially what i just said you know in in terms of these republican presidential candidates such as donald trump who um i i mean you know is it is it shocking that people actually think or believe or agree with Donald Trump? No, it's not shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's hurtful. And I think you know today we'll have a discussion that talks about some of the the hate and how someone like Donald Trump could actually have some followers. And so let's get this program started today. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. After the most recent tragic Paris attacks, the world had a lot of opinions regarding terrorists, border control and immigration, and also Muslims. 
Donald Trump made the shocking comment that we should discontinue allowing Muslims and uh, immigrants, uh, but, but, you know, pointed out Muslims into this great country, America. To me, Donald's opinions are not shocking. I mean, Donald's not shocking. Anything he says is BS. So he himself is not shocking to me. But what what is shocking is the fact that there are Americans out there that are agreeing with him or that support his ideas. So how did we get to this place where Americans think Muslims are horrible? Our guest today is Professor Brian Edwards, who teaches English, Middle East Studies, and Literature at Northwestern University. He's also the author of After the American Century, The Ends of the U.S. Culture in the Middle East. And he's here to discuss a couple articles uh, of his that have been featured on Salon.com, and both discussing Trump and other American political figures who may have contributed to to Americans believing Muslim, Muslims are the most horrible. Let's welcome Brian to the program. Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Well, Michelle, thank you for having me. So let's treat today's show as if we're, we're all your Muslim students when you're teaching in Morocco, in, in which a student actually did ask you in the, uh, one of the articles that you wrote, um, why Islam? Why, why are they considered the worst? You know, I was in uh, Morocco in December again. I've been spending a lot of time in Morocco over the last 20 years. did a, did my first book uh, based in Morocco, um, and so I... When I'm in Morocco, I often go into classrooms and talk with students or give, give a class, give a lecture. Uh, and I would happen to be in Morocco again in December when um, Trump's uh, statements uh, about keeping Muslims out of the United States were airing on media. Now, one of the ideas that we have or that you know, we, we, we think is that expressions such as what Donald Trump was saying don't make it immediately around the world. There's an, an old idea uh, that's sometimes referred to as Orientalism, that there are two different worlds, that there's the Middle East and North Africa over there, uh, and the United States you know, is in the contemporary period over here. But of course, uh, anyone who spends time uh, in any other part of the world, uh, including the Middle East and North Africa, knows that that's not true. There's immediate connectivity. People Young people, people of all ages, see through satellite TV, through the Internet, through much of the same ways that we consume media here in the United States. Uh, they're getting a lot of images and, and phrases and political rhetoric making their way to Morocco. So in this classroom in Fez, University of Fez, Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah University, uh, which is really the, one of the cultural centers of Morocco and of, of the greater Arab world, the young woman who was an undergraduate you know, asked me a question and said, why is it that Americans think that Muslims are the worst? Uh, why do they think that everything um, bad is coming out of the religion when, from our perspective, we see on our media that in the United States you have a very violent culture that mm-hmm. people walk around carrying guns, um, and it used to be that this was just rhetoric, but in fact we know this now to be the case, that people walk around in many states in supermarkets and in university campuses carrying guns openly and are allowed to do so. And this young woman said, you know, to us, uh, it seems that the United States, in fact, is a very violent culture. We watch your movies. We play Grand Theft Auto games and other video games um, that are all very violent but that are very popular around the world. Um, And from our perspective, in fact, you guys are the violent ones. Um, and yet, if you were watching the rhetoric of a lot of your politicians, you would think that we're always in the cost of board violence. Um, when you would never see someone holding a gun uh, in a place like Morocco, it just doesn't happen. It's only the 
police or the military who would have guns legally uh, or at all. Um, and it seems like a question that would be commonsensical uh, if you're coming from an American standpoint because we have for so long uh, villainized or made Muslims or Arabs not, of course, the same category. We can talk about the distinctions in a moment if you like. Um, as a sort of scapegoat uh, or a generalized kind of group that stands for all bad things in the world. Um, and as many people have pointed out, of course, this allows us to filter the news that we see in a particular way and to see um, the reality that's unfolding every day through a kind of filter that helps us to figure out, helps us as consumers of media in the United States to make certain kinds of decisions. Um, you know, I don't. You know, to be a little bit abstract for a moment, reality is always complicated. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that we witness every day. Mm -hmm. Walk through a city or a town wherever you live, and we kind of categorize the knowledge that, or these kind of random facts and and observations into categories and narratives and ongoing narratives that help us to explain that messy reality. It's not a new observation. It's been observed for decades and decades in the United States. Um, and it's uh, now it seems that into the last uh, several decades, but we can talk about different changes in the story, that Muslims and Arabs have been the latest in a series of scapegoats in the United States. Um, right. And they have not always been Muslims. It has been you know, African-Americans uh, in the past, Asians, Asian-Americans during the World War II period. Um, you can go all the way back to the scholars, go back all the way to the Salem witch trials when young women uh, were, you know, accused of being witches for uh, and, and, you know, uh, right. killed by the state for that. Um, so there's a there's a long tradition in the United States that we can, you know, point to and try to understand. Not, uh, you know, and that's the goal here to try to understand that. So this young woman, I had to say to this young woman, well, I mean, it was it was not an innocent question, of course. She she knew that she was an educated. Um, young woman, um, and she, but she really was asking from a very open and um, an open place, and really, you know, just the frustration that young people, that the, my students and the students here in the United States feel too, about the world that they've uh, inherited. So it's safe to say this, you know, the internet, it, the tool itself, uh, that's not a bad thing. It's a great thing for us to stay connected and to get our news fast um, or information. Or education, I think even for yourself as a professor, I mean, the internet's done a, a great thing for us. It's it's the um, it's the news. It's the people who are creating the content, who are saying the things. That's that's the bad part. Um, and when you look at the American media uh, systems or the big corporations um, who have some control over this. I would say that they are they are to blame for for a lot of this, or or maybe you disagree. Maybe maybe it's it's uh, the the politicians like Donald Trump, or who is to blame? Well, it's a really interesting question, Michelle. Um, of course, the uh, media allow and the ability for voices uh, to be heard is a, is a good thing, um, and I think that that one of the great achievements of the internet and what I call the digital age that we're living within is that people with much less access to power or much less access to major media outlets can now find a voice and express themselves. Um, and that has been changing, as we know, every day. It becomes more possible to, to reach an audience. Um, 
outside certain kind of power structures or corporate structures. It used to be, you know, just not too long ago that if you were living in a certain place or um, you just couldn't express yourself without going to the local newspaper, the local radio station, which had a limited reach, or try to find a way into the really powerful main outlets back when there was only a few television channels and only a few major newspapers and so mm-hmm. on. Um, and so I do believe absolutely that the the fact that the Internet has democratized, let's say, or given access to a much larger range of people is a good thing. Of course, what's interesting about that is that at the same time, you know, you can't, as, as with any kind of free speech, you can't control what that means, and one shouldn't expect that, that we could. Um, and we're now kind of in an interesting second, you know, l- l- looking at the Internet, there was first the arrival of the Internet and the amazing thing. I'm sure we remember the amazing, what we remember because no matter how old one is, it's changing every day. Mm-hmm. You know, even kids in school today see that if they think about what they could do last year, it seems like ancient history. It's a very rapid development of the technology, of course. Um, and so you had the Internet. And then, you know, in the, uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, you had what has been referred to as Web 2.0. It wasn't a new Internet that un- unraveled or it was un- you know, released. But all of a sudden, the Internet started to become more interactive as a space. People could put up videos. People could leave comments. They could uh, you know, upload things themselves. And that really changed the Internet and changed the way in which voices uh, might be heard. had some fantastic and wonderful examples of, of what that might allow to happen. Um, frequently, we point to um, the what's been called the Arab Spring, not a term that Middle East experts usually use, the Arab uprisings, um, partially because it happened in the winter, <laughs> um, partially right. because uh, it was a little bit deceptive as a term. In any case, it, there, you know, the ability for so, of young Egyptians and Tunisians to use social networking media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, to organize and, and bring down a longtime uh, autocratic di- dictator was remarkable. I'm not saying that everything um, I have said in print and in the new book, I say this too. Facebook and Twitter didn't create the Arab Spring. There was a lot, they, but they were a tool that was one of the tools that young um, resistors uh, in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere were able to use, and that without which they might not have been able to organize as quickly or as effectively as they did. So we right. have to you know, balance that. You know. um, but also, of course, the Internet. When one should always remember that the Internet is uh, um, and social networking is a tool for not such good things happening. ISIS is very sophisticated in its use of the Internet um, as recruiting kind of locations and has very savvy media people who know how to um, use some of the same uh, mechanisms to attract uh, recruits to to their cause, which is not something generally people are very supportive of outside um, that world, especially in the Middle East, very critical of that. Um, and what we are seeing here in the United States, and this gets us to Trump, is that, you know, I mean, haven't, haven't you noticed that, that what we've now called trolling or trolls, right. um, <laughs> that there's a lot of just negative hate speech that mm-hmm. seems to proliferate on the Internet in a way that it's hard to know, it's hard to study, seems out of sync with um, the kind of, what would you say, the the number of people expressing it. Right, right. Want, yeah. It seems disingenuous, and uh, I think I think it's a whole lot easier for you to just be someone else and be even more hateful just 
just some for some i think it's even like just it's you know it's a it's thrilling um it's not even it might not even be what you you think or you feel or it's not even your politics but but to to say some hurtful things might just be thrilling for you uh, behind a computer it's really a fascinating and disturbing development um that the that this version of what we're still calling web 2.0 mm-hmm. has allowed such proliferation of negativity and i know this is someone who's published uh, articles online you know not not just these new salon pieces which of course released a huge amount of hate speech um against not only you know me the author um, but also the people, the young people that I was writing about, the very this young innocent woman um, who asked this question about the violence, uh, mm-hmm. could not have been a, a, a you know more well-meaning student. And some of the speech that was directed at her was not only just kind of factually wrong, you know, but was was violently negative and hateful. Right, right. Um, Brian, we're, we're actually, you know, and there's something about the. I mean, this is the thing we have to say that true democracy or pure, you know, and true free speech um, allows for a lot of very distasteful uh, expressions of that sure. speech. Now, that's not to say it should be shut down. Of course, we're supporters of free speech, but you have to also at the same time realize that it is not a pure good um, in the sense that it allows for this aggressive kind of hatefulness. Exactly. Exactly. Brian, we're, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I want to I want to touch on the American century and what that means. So stick around. OK, the Michelle Miao show continues right after this. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show. 
Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our guest today is Professor Ed, uh, Brian Edwards, who teaches English Middle East Studies and Literature at Northwestern University. He's also the author of After the American Century, The Ends of the U.S. Culture in the Middle East. And uh, we've been talking about uh, why Islam, why, why Americans might think that Muslims are the worst. And so... Uh, you know, it doesn't help when you have people like Donald Trump um, saying things like, like, uh, you know, we should should not allow uh, Muslims into our country. Um, but, Brian, I, I wanted to, to touch on something that you mentioned in your article uh, called American Century, in which you cite from a, an essay uh, written by Henry Luce. What, what is the American Century? What's that idea? Okay, so the, the American century is a phrase that gets used a lot um, in different ways, of course. Henry Luce, who was the publishing mogul, the founder of Time and Life magazine, Sports Illustrated Fortune, uh, had a huge publishing empire through the 20th century. And in 1941, February, 10 months before the United States enters World War II, he publishes his probably his most influential essay called The American Century. At the time, he actually was, had been raised outside the United States in China, the child of missionary parents, um, but now here he was as this very powerful publisher. And he was responding to those in the United States who were reluctant to get into World War II, um, isolationists, and, and um, basically he, was, he makes an argument that the United States should get into World War II and that we were already an international power. Um, what's remarkable from our day and age is how little Amer- many, most Americans felt that they were the global superpower back in 1941, something that would really come after World War II when American attitudes towards kind of being a world leader changed um, for regular Americans. At this point, France and Britain were considered, you know, these great uh, empires and so on by many Americans. And here was Luce saying that, look, get Get over it. America's an international power. And his examples were uh, that American culture, uh, which he, 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 quote, he said, jazz, Hollywood movies, American slang, American machines and products were the only things that every community in the world recognized in common. Um, now, he was criticized at the time uh, from both the left and from the right for suggesting that it was an American century. And, of course, I myself feel very uncomfortable, as do many uh, on, the, on a more progressive side, in suggesting that the, that the world was in an American century and that the, you know should look to the United States as its, uh, its kind of a, you know, Greenwich Mean Time, so to mm-hmm. speak, of a whole entire century. Um, what's, what was influential, nonetheless, even though he was criticized from both left and right, as I mentioned, was the idea that American culture uh, itself had an international reach and uh, had reached people around the world. The State Department, the United States State Department, um, took this as a kind of a truism um, and started to uh, send around cultural tours, what they call the jazz ambassadors. You you had Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, and other jazz musicians playing around the world, paid for by the U.S. State Department, the funding of abstract expressionist painting exhibits, you know, uh, American writers sent to Latin America and through the Middle East and countries that might go towards the Soviets, because that was, and the idea that the popularity of American culture might be a tool for the, for the government itself, 
know, in, during the Cold War, in the Soviet, you know, the struggle against the Soviet communist model, was something that was very influential. So the American century, as a phrase, the way I'm using it and the way I think it's the, the more accurate uh, usage of it, is this idea that American culture has some interesting relationship to U.S. as a as a government and as a as a as a uh, as a nation uh, in the international sphere. Now, what happened during the Cold War? I mean, you had a lot not only the funding of these various cultural tours, but the building of, of what they were called America houses or libraries. Um, in a variety of ways, Fulbright program, um, you could in a certain way include the Peace Corps, which is a later um, example of um, the, the, the kind of bringing American culture out into the world via young people. And many of these projects, by the way, I think were, were both were good um, mm-hmm. and had led to very good uh, benefits in, in putting people into contact with each other, which is always a good thing. Because from outside, as the United States became more and more powerful during the Cold War as a, as a state, um, you know, putting actual regular Americans in contact with actual pe- real people around the world tended to be a good thing because the United States from afar can look very awesome and powerful um, to people. And, you know, as regular, you know, as Americans travel through the world, often, you know, they're asked questions that surprise them and they become kind of individual ambassadors sort of way. Um, that apparatus, the, the State Department's apparatus for, for this um, kind of cultural, what would later be called cultural diplomacy, um, starts to come apart in the late 1990s because the Cold War was supposedly over. We thought we'd won the Cold War and there was less, um, there was less uh, powerful supporters for keeping the USIA in power. Uh, and meanwhile, the Republicans were arguing that it was kind of a waste of money, it could be cut back, and it really, a lot of these cultural programs were, of course, peopled by cultural people or young people in the Peace Corps, or um, the Peace Corps is independent of of this in a certain way, but that you couldn't really control jazz musicians or painters. A lot of the the politics, a lot of the artists were very leftist, of course, and some people in the Republican Party didn't like that. In any case, it starts to be taken apart in the late 90s, because it doesn't seem like a moment when it matters anymore. After September 11, 2001, when so many people are uh, freaking out to be, you know, blunt about about what's going on in the world, there are many people who argued that we should bring back this Cold War cultural diplomacy in places like the New York Times, um, within the State Department too, and so through the Bush and uh, Obama administrations, both mm-hmm. of the return of um, a lot of these cultural programs. I quote in the Salon the essay in Salon that was published on Sunday, you know, Hillary Clinton talking about hip-hop initiatives uh, that looked a lot like the jazz tours of the 1950s, uh, that, that this was a tool, she said, you know, there's a quote from Hillary Clinton, hip-hop is America, I think we have to use every tool at our disposal about why the State Department should be funding hip-hop tours. Now, what's interesting to me about that quote, of course, hip-hop is America, no no dis- disagreement there, but the idea that the state would understand culture as a tool to help influence hearts and minds um, is quite interesting. And so one of the things that I know and I've been charting as I researched this new book after the American century is that American culture remains incredibly popular throughout the world, um, and including and especially in the Middle East and North Africa, even while U.S. politics have been 
increasingly unpopular in the Middle East region. Um, even while a critique of the U.S. as sort of an empire or an occupying force has been levied in Arab countries and Middle East, in countries, uh, non-Arab countries in the Middle East like mm-hmm. Iran, mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, you will find a huge presence of American popular culture, whether it's hip-hop music, of course, Hollywood movies, but all sorts of other newer versions of American culture, whether it's video games um, or social networking sites or YouTube. Young people, and not not only young people, but especially young people in the Middle East and North Africa, recognize that the origins of, of many of these cultural products are the United States and have no problem under, you know, using them, consuming them, while, uh, you know, that does not make them supportive of the United States as a political con- uh, entity. That, to me, is really fascinating. I mentioned before the ISIS social networking uh, strategy. We had a, uh, we hosted a lecture here where, where a young scholar was showing a room of, of uh, students and faculty and people in this community here in just north mm-hmm. of Chicago. Um, ISIS's cat videos. <laughs> Twitter feed, and we yeah. were kind of blown away right. by the savvy of what yeah. you know the recruiters were, were doing there. Brian, so Brian, the American, I, that's, yeah. I, I have one uh, last question for you, and then unfortunately we run out of time. And like I said in my email, I mean, you know, I know that your publicist had sent me the book. I want to, I want to dive into that book and have you back and, and have a, a long, lengthier discussion. Um, about your book. But uh, my last question for you this morning you know, has to do with this idea that people uh, here in this country and, and, and probably in foreign countries in which the, you know, the democracy in America may be under threat. It's interesting because you have some politicians here in this country who may say that uh, you know, it's the gay and the lesbians who are uh, a threat to the American democracy. But what are your thoughts? Um, who's more of a threat? You know, are they these uh, conservative Republican um, uh, political figures, or or is it the internet, or what? What's the threat to American democracy? Well, look, there's always been, you know, in American political history, there's always been this tension between, and it goes back to the early, you know, founding, uh, the founders of the Constitution, between total and full democracy, democracy of the masses, and a more restricted sense that we have written into our Constitution. Um, that kind of puts a filter between between that. What's fascinating, of course, from a historical, you know, looking at the moment we're in right now, is how the Internet, as what started as just another kind of tool or form of entertainment, which it is um, as well, has completely changed um, the, you know, our understanding of what it means to have democratic range of voices out there. So that, you know, everything is very immediate and rapid and, as you said in the beginning of the segment, on you know, like you could be if you're watching the State of the Union, which I was doing, you might also be watching it on Twitter and what people were saying about it at the same time, which I was also doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that people in the room at the, the as Obama was addressing were apparently writing Twitters or looking at their cell phones. I don't know what they were doing. You know, we thought they were kind of embarrassed, but then it looked like some of them were putting things on Twitter while the president spoke. So to see that in that old tradition of the State of the Union, to see members of, uh, of Congress writing tweets or whatever they're doing on their, on their tablets um, demonstrates that even in our oldest institutions, things have changed pretty directly. Now, I don't think that that, you know, is a, it's a challenge um, to, to our democracy. And we've always struggled with our, what I 
you know, to go back to something we said earlier with our unfortunate tradition of scapegoating different groups at different times. As you said, gays and lesbians, um, you know, um, uh, Muslims, Asians, and Asian Americans mm-hmm. during the 40s, and it goes you know, African Americans, and it goes, it goes back. We don't even talk about the native peoples of the United States very much in these conversations, but they certainly would have something to say about threats to, um, you know, to, to, the, to talking about scapegoating. Um, so um, we need to, you know, we're, we're rapidly adjusting to this new climate. Um, and part of the point of the Salon articles and the point of the book, when I talk about the ends of U.S. culture in the Middle East, it's not to say that U.S. culture has ended. There's been some discussion about that, but that U.S. culture ends up in so many places and is, so much is done with it in ways that we didn't recognize or didn't think would happen. Um, mm-hmm. And that, to me, and this when you know this comes out much more in the book, the nuance of a book, um, to look at what's happening in the new Egyptian um, cultural scene, or in Iran, or in Moroccan uses of Facebook. I write about the first openly gay Moroccan novelist in that book, um, and what YouTube did to the discussion of sexuality and homosexuality in Morocco, um, which is a fascinating story to tell, maybe for another show. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> I've got you interested, right? Yes, but, yes, um, yes. I can't wait for the book to arrive in my, my hands. Right. So, you know, you just see that in this, in this digital age, um, part of what I'm trying to do is describe a period, what I'm calling after the American century, when culture moves so immediately and, and ends, up in, ends up in so many different places. Mm-hmm. And young people who I'm, always, I'm an optimist in the end, despite all the negative, sad, terrible right. things we're talking about, <laughs> I remain optimistic that young people, creative people um, in a variety of communities in the U.S. and right. around the world will help us figure out um, and, you know, manage the downside that's come with all of these liberating technologies and possibilities. I agree. I agree. And, and, and Donald Trump is getting older and, uh, you know... <laughs> Um, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to our next session uh, and I look forward to the book. So thanks for spending some time with us. Michelle, thanks so much. I'll be out in San Francisco and Berkeley uh, in the spring to give a couple lectures at Berkeley. And um, I look forward to talking to you uh, further, maybe around then. Yes, that sounds perfect. You should get your hands on uh, Brian's book and that is titled... After the American Century, The Ends of the U.S. Culture in the Middle East. It's available, uh, I'm sure, anywhere you can get it, uh, a digital copy or at a book, a bookstore. Don't go away. We'll continue the show right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to 
believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. And, uh, you know, I'm going to take a little bit of time here to kind of... Uh, not shock us into it, but ease us into the fact that tax season is 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 here. It's January nineteenth, and so our good friend Sue Ellen from H and R Block is here with us, our our tax therapist. I've I've just coined the term for you there. <laughs> I love it. I'm going with that. That's 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 what we're going to do now. No tax uh, therapy. Officially, you're though you're a tax pro. I think is what they call it now, right? That's right. That's a tax good. advisor and. Tax pro. Yes, so she's got her entire credential set for us. So, Sue Ellen, you know, we we uh, we had you on earlier. We kind of opened up um, our conversation with the fact that there are a couple things that people need to keep in mind as we open tax season: healthcare coverage and tax fraud. I want to go back to you know the health insurance part because it, no matter how many times you talk about it, people are always going to continue to have questions about this, especially because those penalties are increasing. That's right. So the Affordable Care Act impacts all taxpayers, even small business owners. For tax filers with health insurance, compliance efforts will be uh, more stringent, I guess. Uh, taxpayers will be required to document that they have health insurance, which you mentioned last time, and they'll receive this new form. I mean, for someone, everyday person yes, like myself, a I new know. form, there's so many numbers. What is that new form? Well, uh, first of all, don't be worried. You'll be seeing a new form, and it's a 1095 form. And there, just for fun, there are three different versions of it. There's a 1095A, a B, and a C. And long story short, you'll be getting a 1095A if you went into the marketplace and purchased your health coverage. So that will come to you, and you'll need to bring that in when you have your taxes prepared. That one's very important to bring in so that your tax pro can take the information from the form and put it into the tax return. So you mentioned A, B, and C. So that's A, right. A is if you bought your uh, coverage from the marketplace yes. here in California, that's covered California. Of course. Uh, uh, the B and the C? Now, the 1095B is something uh, uh, that a, a person will receive generally if they work for the government or if they receive their health coverage through the government, Medicare, Medicaid, that sort of thing. 
Um, also, small employers will use those. Uh, 1095C is generally for everyone else who has health coverage through their employer. They'll now be issued those two forms, the, the B and the C. What I want people to know, what's important to remember, is those are what we call um, forms that are not required forms. So you will not need that to complete your tax return. Um, I have a quick question uh, to, to expand upon that. I mean, a, a lot of us in the LGBTQ community are still domestic partners, um, you know, who haven't taken that extra plunge to, to change it formally, the, the marriage. And so if you fall under that category, one of you might be a dependent you, uh, or, you know, you're receiving health insurance from your partner's uh, employer. And so where do you fall in that form? Uh, I guess, you know, do you, are you filling out A, B or C? Well, you're, these, again, you're not filling out these forms. These forms come to you. They're informational basis. Got it. So if you have an employer-provided health insurance plan, uh, you will be getting a 1095C. And that information about you and your partner will all be on that form. It's informational. It's not a required form. So come on in. If, even if you didn't get it, come on in. Still get your taxes done. And you mentioned that we get this form, uh, or did you mention it, when, when we actually get this form? Well, these forms will be coming out, they're employer-generated or government-generated. They generally should be coming out about February 1st. And I'm glad you brought up that date because I want people to know that the tax season is open. We can prepare your, your taxes now. They will remain on our servers, and then the IRS will open its its doors, so to speak, on January 19th. That's the first day that the IRS will accept e-filed, <clears throat> excuse me, e-filed returns or even paper returns that you're mailing in. So January 19th, and they're open for business. You can still have your you know taxes prepared. Absolutely, and we <laughs> urge people to come in sooner rather than later. And, of course, we talked about this before, and, and that's a, a good way to avoid any tax fraud issues. Get them done sooner, and we're incentivizing people to come in. We're offering a sweepstakes the first 32 days of the season just to get people to come out and do it. Um, and I, I know you covered, you know, the, the why part, I mean, why we're getting uh, this form. Um so I, I think we're pretty clear. You're getting a Form 1095. It's informational, and it's regarding your health care coverage. Uh, and those who need coverage now for 2016, open enrollment is? Open enrollment is, is happening now, and it remains open until January 31st. I want people to know if they don't have health insurance at this point, absolutely get into the marketplace, get that insurance. Why? It'll, it'll save you penalties going forward. It's, it's too late to buy health insurance now for coverage that you needed in 2015. So you may be facing a penalty when your taxes are prepared now for last year. Um, unless you qualify for an exemption, all of the tax pros out there are ready, willing, and able to help you look for that. But if you don't have health insurance now, take care of that issue, get into the marketplace. It's open until January 31st. I'm sure if uh, there are lots of you out there who might still have some questions. So if there are some lingering questions around health care coverage and penalties and your taxes this year, um, people can get a hold of you. How can they do that? 
Of course, they can always go to our website, hrblock.com. That's the best way, and you can find local offices. That's wonderful. I'm in the San Bruno office um, on, on El Camino Real, 1310 El Camino Real. Thank you, Sue Ellen. I'm sure you'll be back with more tips for us. I'd love to come back. Thanks, Michelle. All right. There's some tips for you there regarding your health care coverage. It's, it's been... I think, you know, we get it. We get that we'll be penalized if we don't have health care, but then all the other little stuff, you know, how much will be, we be penalized? How are they going to, you know, organize this? That's, that's why Sue Ellen's here to help. So we'll continue the show right after this. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and uh, a good friend of mine has dropped in to help us through the opening of the tax season. I know for uh, for those who have tuned in, you probably have heard us talk about health care coverage. You've talked about the penalties if you don't have health care coverage and how that impacts your taxes and also something uh, such as tax fraud. But um, this year, I've been told that California has this new earned income tax credit. Uh, the state's lower income working families will be eligible for state and federal earned income tax credits, which are refundable. And there's nearly $4 million, $4 million on top of the $1,000 a day that h and Block has given away. But there's nearly $400 million available from the state credit uh, to eligible lower income Californians. So, what does this all mean? Well, Sue Ellen's going to walk us through it. Who is actually eligible for this tax credit? Well, thanks for having me, Michelle, and I'm glad you brought this up. This is something new for Californians who are lower income working people. And California recognizes that there are people out there who, who could use a little help, and they've set aside $400 million. That's a sizable chunk of money. They've created essentially the California version of the federal earned income tax credit. 
That is awesome. I mean, it, I it's mean, a it's a great o- thing. It's awesome in that we've never had it before, and uh, it's not that there are not any eligible people. I mean, this is a lot of money that the IRS is setting aside, or the government. I should well, say. that's right. For a long time, the IRS has had this program, and now California has instituted it. It's the first year. What I want people to know, if they have qualified in the past for the federal earned income tax credit, or you hear EITC, then I want them to make sure they talk to their tax professional about the California version. Can I qualify for that? I Mm. want them to make sure they ask about it because we don't want to leave any of that money on the table. Absolutely not. And, um, you know, what does a taxpayer need to do to get this credit? What do you actually need to do? Well, this is important. First of all, you have to file a California state income tax return. Now, I want to stress that because possibly these individuals, these hardworking individuals who are lower income, may not have to file a state income tax return because their income may fall below the threshold where they're required to file. However, in order to qualify for the California EITC, they must do a California return. So that's the first thing they need to know. It's very important. Anything else you would like to add before we wrap? Well, sure. Have, uh, have these people come in when they do their returns, ask about this, because there are certain numbers you need to earn below, and it, it, the uh, amount that you can qualify for on the e- EITC is dependent upon the amount of money you earn, the number of dependents you may have, Um, Those change for for different people, um, of course, but just the important thing to know is they must file a California state tax return, and they Mm -hmm. should ask their tax pro about this. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to clarify in the beginning, I mentioned the $400 million that's set aside, uh, but on top of that, H&R Block is also giving away $1,000, but it's not just to anybody. Uh, Tell us a little bit and expand on that special promotion. Well, we're trying to urge people to come in sooner rather than later and file their taxes. So for the first 32 days of the tax filing system, we're giving away $1,000 a day. It's wow. a random drawing. Anyone who comes in, their their name is thrown in the ring. They could win. That's a lot of money. That is The a reason lot. we're doing it is because tax fraud is on the increase. And uh, we want to urge our people to come in sooner and do it. It's $1,000 a day for 1,000 people. So lots of money. That's a million dollars a day we're giving away. Thank you so much, Sue Ellen. If you want to be in touch with Sue Ellen, uh, Sue Ellen Smith, um, she's out here in the San Francisco Bay Area. But uh, if you're, uh, you know, wherever you are, I'm sure you can find an H&R Block tax advisor by heading to hnrblock.com. Tune into the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.